You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Well, good morning, Cities Church. Um, This is Pastor Kevin. Sermon text for today is Psalm 19. So if you got a Bible, go ahead and crack that open. We'll, We'll look at it together. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous, altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is Psalm 19. Well, About 60 years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote a short book on the Psalms called Reflections on the Psalms. And as the title would suggest, it's essentially a general commentary um, on this fascinating part of scripture. And when Lewis got to Psalm 19, he said something kind of unique, pretty interesting. What Lewis said about Psalm 19 is that it's the greatest poem in the entire Psalms. And more than that, it's one of the greatest lyrics ever written. One of the greatest lyrics in the world. I mean, this is, this is pretty high praise from not too bad a lyricist himself. And so I'm really excited for us today to hear from God, to see his glory in Psalm 19. And there's really three key movements in this Psalms or in this psalm, three, three key sections, and it's pretty obvious. Lewis puts it like this. You've got six verses about nature, five about the law, and three personal prayer. And so that's how we're going to walk through it this morning. We've got three points. Each of the sections is going to show us a different angle of the glory of God, starting with the heavens and ending with our own hearts. So three points this morning. First, the world of glory. Second, the word of glory. And third, the way of glory. But before we begin, would you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you and thank you for the world you have made and the word that you have given to us. Father, I ask this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. We need your help. Would you come, please? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so first point, the world of glory. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 here. And let's start, at, let's start with verse 1. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So right away in this psalm, you've got an ancient poem that David is writing. And initially, his mind is going to the heavens, to the sky above. You think about the sun, the, the moon, the stars. And for us, you know, we've got additional technology and telescopes that David didn't have. And so we could perhaps let our minds wander a little bit more and think about our solar system and the Milky Way and supernovas and black holes and all of these unbelievable trillions of stars and galaxies in this amazing universe that God has made. And you know, perhaps for an illustration on this, I was doing a little bit of background research uh, pr preparing for the sermon today, and I came across something that was kind of interesting. So if you have time sometime this afternoon, don't do it right now. Go ahead and do a Google search for Cosmic Reef, Cosmic Reef. Uh, some of you might know that the Hubble Space Telescope turned 30 last week. And in a bit of a birthday shot, it captured this incredible image that NASA named Cosmic Reef. And it's, it's of these two nebula that are 160,000 light years away from us. And the colors are just incredible. It, you almost wouldn't believe that this is a real shot. And NASA named it Cosmic Reef because they said this, that the sparkling, brilliant structures resemble a cosmic coral reef sparkling and glistening in some secret corner of a deep space ocean. And an astrophysicist that they interviewed for this article at, on space.com said, the image is amazing and it really shows how powerful Hubble is. How, how powerful Hubble is? I mean, sure. I mean, this telescope is amazing. I mean, it's been running for 30 years. It's very impressive. And I personally am very thankful that all of the things that we've been able to see in the universe that God made and the way, you know, science has been uh, expanded through its use. But how powerful Hubble is. I mean, how about the being that made the cosmic reef? How about the one who made those nebulae and, and all of the rest? I mean, Psalm 19 is showing us that God made the heavens, God made the universe, the sky above, not to show us how great our telescopes are, how impressive we are, but to display and declare God's amazing, wondrous craftsmanship in the universe. So whether we have a gigantic space telescope or just our own two eyes, the, the heavens, they say something to us. They're, they're speaking, they're talking. And, and so we should listen. We should listen. And if we do, I think there's, there's three particular things. There's lots of things to learn, but three in particular, let me just mention that we hear when we listen to the heavens. What are they, what are they declaring about the glory of God specifically? Well, first, 
the heavens are high. They're in a sense, they're, they're untouchable to mortal man. You know, when, when you go outside on a clear night, which we have a lot of those now, and you look up at the stars you just close your eyes for a, ma- a second and imagine this. You're outside. It's a clear night. You can see the stars. How do you feel in that moment? I think most of us in that moment, we feel really small. And, and that's a good feeling. Job 22 says, is not God high in the heavens? See the highest stars, how lofty they are. So I think it's good for us to remember that in the same way that the heavens are high and the stars are high and lofty, that our God, he is high and he is lofty. But second, not only are the heavens high, but second, the heavens are beautiful. They inspire awe and and wonder. They're just amazing things. The cosmic reef, it's an amazing image. That's just one little slice of this unbelievable universe that God has made. And they teach us They teach us that God makes beautiful things, that his majesty is amazing. It's beautiful. David says himself in Psalm 8, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So third, the heavens are purposeful. They're practical. There's there's a reason that God made them. This is an interesting one. God made them. One of the reasons that God made the heavens is to show us things, um, to show us practical things. Genesis tells us this. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. So there's specific practical uses that God built into the heavens from our vantage point here on earth, we can use them for navigation and to know what season it is and and many other things which are very practical, useful, and helpful. So the heavens are high, beautiful, and purposeful. Those are three things that we hear when we listen uh, to what the heavens are saying. They teach us something about who God is and what he's like. And and then in verses two through four, we see how all-encompassing this revelation is. We see that it happens day to day and night to night. It's happening every day, every night, like clockwork. But not just every day and every night, but in verse four, we see it goes out to all the earth. It goes to the end of the world. It, nothing escapes the, the glory of God displayed through the heavens and the sky. And this really reminds me of, of Romans 1. You guys probably are familiar with this passage where Paul writes, for what can be known about God is, is plain to them because he has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, the things we can't see, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, like the heavens and the sky. It's telling us specific things about God that we can't see. But David ends this first section with with a specific example, and he talks about the sun. Um, You can see in in verses five and six there, he he applies a very interesting metaphoric language uh, to the sun here. He talks about how every morning, from our perspective, it appears that the sun is bursting out from his room like a man on his wedding day. 
And um, this is that's interesting language to use. You know, there's there's a lot of joy and anticipation uh, for a man on his wedding day bursting out of his chamber. Um, but also he talks about how the sun finishes each day like a strong man, like a champion, like an athlete finishing the race with endurance and with joy. And his the sun's rising is from one end of the heavens and the circuit is to the end of them. And nothing on earth, he says, nothing on earth is hidden from its heat. Now, we might take issue with David at this point, you know, in January in Minnesota. But, but the point still remains that, you know, the sun is still there. It's just we're not getting as much of his rays. Um, But we do still get glimpses. And, you know, in that sense, all of humanity, even January in Minnesota, can see and can feel the warmth of the sun and thus learn generally what God is like. You know, there's a cloudy, a dim way that we're understanding something about God when we look at the sun. And that's what David's saying. But here's the thing. God is not, he's not satisfied with humanity simply having a, a dim understanding of who he is, though he could have stopped there, but he doesn't. And, and so that leads us to our second point. And this is the word of glory. And we're gonna look at verses seven to 11 here. Now, when you initially look at this, and and I did the same thing, it seems to be a rather abrupt break in thought. So David starts out discussing creation, and then sort of all of a sudden starts talking about the law of the Lord. And commentators actually for years have sort of debated back and forth, you know, saying, oh, is this actually two different Psalms? Was it written at different times? And, you know, people have debated this. But I think as you, if you read this Psalm, again and again, and you meditate on it again and again, the theme of it really smacks you in the face. It it is very much connected. This psalm, it's about speech. It's about words. I mean, you look at the, the very first verse, the heavens are declaring, proclaiming the glory of God. They're talking, they're speaking. And then the second section, it's the law of the Lord. This is God talking, God communicating specifically to us. And even in the last section, verses 12 to 14, David talks about the words of my mouth. So it even finishes with speech. That's the, that's the theme of the, of the whole Psalm. Spurgeon put the connection between that first stanza and the second stanza like this, really like this says he is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work. And he says concerning them, my father wrote both of these. So I want to ask just two quick questions of the poem in this section in verses 7 to 11. Let's look at how are God's words described and what is their effect? How they're described and what is their effect? So let's look first at the description of, of God's word here in verses 7 to 11. You can look at basically that last, that last adjective in each of the first lines Um, we're going to stack them all up together. So the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, and right. It's reliable. It's stable. Then we see that it's, it's pure and it's clean. It has no errors. It has no, no fault. This is, this is not fake news. It's enduring forever. It does not change. It lasts forever. And it's true and righteous. Um, and it, 
I mean, thinking about this, you know, if you tried to apply these descriptions to, you know, maybe like your favorite book or, you know, your favorite uh, newspaper author or whatever, it, it just doesn't work. You know, you try to apply perfect, sure, right, righteous, you know, eternally never changing. We cannot do this. Only God can speak like this. And part of the reason that scripture is described this way is that through his word, God is communicating himself to us. And, you know, just as the world is declaring the glory of God, the word, his word more precisely speaks of his glory. And it's how God shows us what he's like. And if you think of, if you take that thought a little bit further, I mean, what is the greatest way that God communicates himself? Well, it's through the word of God, Jesus. Um, we see elsewhere in scripture, you know, in, in uh, the gospel of John, the first chapter, it says, and the word became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the father's side, he has made him known. So Jesus then, Jesus is the ultimate communication by a loving God to a dying world. And God's word, in a sense, put on bones and skin and flesh and walked among us as a living, breathing human being. And so when you open your Bible this week, remember this, remember that God orchestrated all of history so that he could talk to you, so that he could communicate to you personally, directly. And, and by the way, make sure that you look for Jesus in the scriptures. We don't miss him in there. Even if you're in the Old Testament, do not miss Jesus in the scriptures. Jesus said this to uh, some Jews who knew their Bibles really well, at least this part. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but you're missing it. It is they that bear witness about me, Jesus says, and yet you refuse to come to me so that you would have eternal life. So this is how God offers life to the world is through his words and ultimately through his word become flesh, Jesus. So now what is the effect? What's the effect of God's word? Well, you just look at the indented lines, basically, in, in each of these phrases uh, in verses seven and eight. God's word revives the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart and enlightens the eyes. Okay. Okay. So what is, what does that mean? Well, it means God wor God's word makes us alive when we were dead. It, it gives us understanding when we had none. It, it makes us deeply happy when we were not. And it lets us see when we couldn't. If you think about those effects in just a, in a practical way, think about how much you would pay for something that could give you all of those things. I mean, even, even our world would agree that a product invented that promises life, knowledge, happiness, and vision would be worth all of the money in the world. I mean, you, you think about essentially 
we're talking about the whole health and fitness industry, the whole education industry, the whole counseling industry, all rolled into one. And this is trillions of dollars a year that are spent combined all over the world on all these things. And they're good things. These are definitely good gifts from God. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, the gym and school and books, et cetera, these are, these are awesome. However, they are not God. They're not. And if we seek life and happiness in these created things first and primarily and miss the creator, we're missing the whole point. We're missing the whole point of why we were made. And that's why it's not surprising the way David finishes this section. He finishes this, this section talking about the value of God's word. Verses 10 and 11, he says that it's better than gold, better than gold, even much fine gold. It's worth all the money in the world. But also, it's not just financially worth something. It's also delicious. It's sweeter than honey. We can experience it. It's, it's better. It's more satisfying than your favorite meal at your favorite restaurant. I mean, th this is very interesting language that David's using here. And I think we need to stop and, and just think and ask ourselves, do we believe this? Do we live like we believe that God in his word and through his spirit is going to give us the life and happiness that we are seeking? I mean, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added to you. Lewis paraphrased that like this. He said, aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. But aim at earth, and you get neither. So we see in verse 11 here that God's word, it offers those rewards. It offers real, tangible rewards because it's offering God to us. And he is ultimately rewarding. However, it, awful, it also offers a warning. And we need, to, we need to think a little bit about why we need a warning. So we're going to look at that in our final point here. So third and final point, this is the way of glory. And this is verses 12 to 14 as we finish out here. So after poetically discussing and describing God's majestic glory in creation, and then his specific laser-like transformative glory expressed in scripture in his word. Now, David, he turns to himself. He looks inward, you know, from the world to God's words to what about me? And what's fascinating here is how the word choices change very drastically. Just, just look at this with me. It, when you contrast the words chosen in verses 12 and 13 versus David's descriptions of the creation and the creator, uh, there couldn't be a bigger difference. Right away in verse 12, David says, who can discern his own errors? So errors, you know, in, in light of the law of the Lord being perfect, and the heavens, which consistently proclaim and declare and praise God every single day and every single night without fail. David's own errors, 
and our own errors are made much more obvious. They're magnified in a sense. David then he goes on to talk about hidden faults and presumptuous sins and dominion and great transgression. I mean, these are the words that he's using when he's talking about himself. And he's pleading with God to, to keep him away from these things because he knows without God, he will rush headlong into these things and we will as well. Our hearts are broken. We are off course. Without God, we're running straight into errors, faults, sins, dominion, great transgression. That's what's happening. So what is going on here? I mean, why, why end the psalm here? Well, I think when, when our lives and our actions, our words are, are placed up against the, the perfection and clarity and beauty and goodness of God's world that we see in creation and his words in scripture, it's very obvious that we fall short. We fall short of the standard. We fall short of the standard of, of creation, um, declaring God's praise every day. In Romans, it says, all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And one of the things that, that God's law provides for us is a mirror. And this is a mercy. It's a merciful mirror to see our, our thoughts and our intentions and our behaviors. And the reflection that we see when we look in this, it's not good. It's not a good reflection. And, and so that's why David, he asked God to forgive him. He says, declare me innocent. Well, how do you declare someone innocent who's not innocent? You have to forgive them. He's asking for forgiveness. It, this is, I mean, it's a very humble prayer. He says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. And, you know, I think this is, could be a twofold meaning here. It could be, you know, hidden from even myself. You know, who can discern his own errors? Like, I know there's sin in me that I can't even see. Lord, would you show it to me? And would you forgive me for the things that I can't even see? But also, forgive me for the things that I'm hiding from other people, the hidden faults that I'm hiding over in this corner that I don't want people to see. But it's not just hidden things from myself or from others. It's also presumptuous sins that he's worried about. And, you know, presumptuous sins, these are a little bit more of your, you know, sins of presumption. Uh, these are intention. Uh, these are obvious. These are clearly wrong. Um, they, they end in great transgression, you know, which, which David talks about. Please don't, uh, please, Lord, don't let these things have dominion over me. Essentially, David is asking God here, keep me away from these. I need your help. And, you know, then, only then, if God forgives us of the hidden sins that I can't see and the clear sins that I do, can we be blameless and innocent, as David says. But here's the problem. The problem is, how can any of us truly be blameless and innocent? I mean, think about even the author here, David himself. He failed in this. He failed in this in his own life. You think about sins of presumption and great transgression. I mean, David broke the whole second table of the Ten Commandments in a single week when he took Bathsheba. He coveted. He stole, he committed adultery, he lied about it, and he murdered. That's the whole shebang. So I mean, if even the author here is not blameless and innocent, what, 
what is our hope? What is our hope? Well, our hope is verse 14. This, this is the way of glory. David finishes here this, this beautiful psalm. It, it ends in the most fitting way. It ends with who God is. God is my rock and my redeemer. I just love these descriptions. I mean, he's, God is our rock. And you can think about how David described creation. And you know, God is the rock. He's the, the stable one. He's the foundation. But he's also my redeemer. He's our redeemer. And you know, for our innocence and our acceptance that David is asking for, that we're asking for, for that to be real and enduring, God must be our redeemer. We need redemption. And you know, redeem, redeemer, I mean, these are, these are churchy words that you might hear and they go one, in one ear and out the other, but I want these to stick. I mean, to redeem something, it simply means to buy back. It's talking about regaining possession of something or someone that you lost, but you have to pay for it. It requires payment. And, and so how, God, how is God our redeemer? Well, God is our redeemer because he came to this earth as a human. He came as a human and Jesus Christ, he fulfilled Psalm 19 perfectly. I mean, think about this. All of these things that we've been talking about that David's been describing, Jesus fulfills. I mean, Jesus, he calls himself the light of the world when he comes. The light of the world. Well, normally you would call the sun the light of the world. Well, Jesus is the, the son of God. He is the light of the world. But not just that, Jesus, he's the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom bursting from his chamber looking for his bride. And Jesus, he's the strong man. He is the champion who finishes our race in our place. Jesus is the perfect word of God. He is the only one who can revive the soul, who can rejoice the heart. And because Jesus accomplished redemption on the cross, he can forgive us. He can, he truly is our rock and our redeemer. And that, that is the message of Psalm 19. It's one of the greatest lyrics ever written. And the whole thing is about the glory of God seen in Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. Amen.